is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing something a little heavier than usual. Today, we'll be talking about some of our favorite musicians who have passed away. A few weeks before we started recording this episode, the superstar Brazilian singer Marília Mendonça died when her plane crashed en route to a concert venue. With her soulful voice and angsty ballads, she was known in Brazil as the Queen of Suffering, especially among fans of Feminijo, a subgenre of Brazilian pop music created by and for women. The multi-platinum Latin Grammy winner was just 26 when she died, and the outpouring of grief from her millions of fans stretched across Latin America and beyond. More than 100,000 people attended her memorial service. Such reactions aren't uncommon when popular musicians die unexpectedly. Sometimes when we lose multiple musicians at once or in succession, entire blocks of time become these weird landmarks of sorrow. February 3rd, 1959 is known as the day the music died when Buddy Holly, J.P. Richardson, and Richie Valens all perished in a plane crash. In a stretch of 11 months across 1970 and 1971, we lost Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, and Louis Armstrong. 2016 was particularly hard, as we had to say farewell to David Bowie, Glenn Fry, Maurice White, Keith Emerson, and Greg Lake, George Michael, Leonard Cohen, and Prince. And in 2020, we lost 80 major music stars, a few of them directly to COVID-19, at a time when we all felt like we were losing more than we could bear. There's something about music that connects us deeply to our favorite artists. Music is emotional, even if it's being performed for us by a stranger. Music is intimate, even when played in a sold-out arena. Music is order, even among the chaos of a bewildering world and the untidiness of our own lives. Music makes sense out of the senseless and creates belonging among the lonely. Music is a kind of magic, so whenever we must say goodbye to our most beloved wizards, it always feels too soon. And yet, there is light amid darkness. When Kurt Cobain died so tragically, his music suddenly reached a whole new legion of kids who would quickly find solace in what he had to say. And when Marilia Mendonça died, she instantly became the highest-streamed artist in Brazilian history. The musician may die, the music never does. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The musicians whom we've had to bid farewell, but whose music continues to speak to us in moments of truth, big and small. So let's get into it. With me today, on lead vocals, we have Chris Cash Money Crenshaw. Are you ready to rock? <laughs> on guitar, we have Tom Hardcore Hespos. Have you seen Junior's grades? <laughs> and on horns, we've got Joe Lunchbox Pace. I, I've tried to think of a, a clever comment here, but I'll just say good evening and we'll move on. <laughs> and we'll put it behind us. Outstanding. All right, look, Chris, why don't you open up the discussion with us? Since I know you've got a couple of people you want to talk about, and some of them are a little bit in the Wayback Machine. So why don't you talk to us about some musicians that, that you know, kind of made an impact on you once, you know, when you realized that they, that they were no longer with us? You know, the first musician death I really remember was Elvis, famously died on the toilet. Elvis was like a big deal in my household. I spent a lot of time with my grandmother, who was this sweet little old plump lady from Georgia who said things like, you know, lock the screenge door and that box is heavy. Bless your heart. Um, oh, yeah. Well, a lot of bless your heart. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she, she always used to, she, she actually kept a portrait of Elvis on her wall and uh, was it velvet? No, but <sighs> I always wished it was. Um, <laughs> she, she would say, uh, he makes my heart go pitter pat, pitter pat. <laughs> and, I love this woman already. <laughs> and, 
I want her I peach mean, cobbler right now. Right? Was, Seriously, national treasure. What you, what you want is her pecan pie. Oh, there we <laughs> I go. Was I was close. There you are. There you are. Okay. But uh, right there. You know, it was a big deal in my family. Uh, it was kind of like a tragedy. And I don't, I've obviously heard a lot of Elvis songs uh, yeah. since Mamaw liked him so much. Um, But it didn't really affect me. It, but I saw it affecting the adults around me. And and I guess that was my 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 first real memory of, of a death like this. But the one that really affects me the most, I guess, has to be Prince. Yeah. Purple Rain was like the second cassette tape I ever bought. He represented this this sort of sea change in my musical taste. He was not really rock, not really everybody's bag. So talented, and and, and I just really dug everything that he did even if i didn't get it you know like i didn't wholly understand what darling nikki was about back in the day for example <laughs> but, he was a freak he was a freak he was he was a freak yeah and, and you know i i think that that maybe what what made his death so impactful for me regardless of of, of how much he he affected me musically was just that man that dude always looked so young yeah he yeah. did you know, he he really, he, really he, he looked he looked like he was in his twenties or thirties until the day he died, yeah. and so I mean, while I expect we're going to talk about mortality a lot in this episode, I mean, I guess that's that's why it affected me so much. It was like, yeah. oh, that's going to happen to me, yeah, and, and in a way that say Elvis didn't, because I was a kid, but uh, you and know, Elvis he, looked older than his years when he passed, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> In, really in, there was a hard in, cutoff in my house, by the way. Like you know, past a certain age of Elvis, like you just did not go. Like your dad will play it up to you know, like a certain point. You were never going to yeah. hear like in the ghetto or like any of those. There's no Vegas. Songs. There's like, no Vegas. Never gonna, yeah, never yeah, going to be yeah. played in our household. There Vegas zero, Elvis is not a thing. There is we zero skinny El Elvis in our household. Yeah. <laughs> there is no Elvis of any kind in my household. Like uh, none. My parents just didn't even. At least not below the waist. Seriously, I, I mean, they just didn't listen to him. So, like, Chris, in stark contrast to your experience, when I was growing up, it was, like, okay to make fun of Elvis. Because, like, when he died, all I really was aware of it, to, to the extent that I was aware of him at all, was just, like, basically the the sort of, you know, the portly Vegas, you know, Elvis, right? right. Um, very sweaty. Very sweaty. Very, yeah, yeah, very sweaty. <laughs> and just and just completely okay to make fun of him, you know? And, like, <laughs> and it's was, it was, it was like kids on the school bus would always be cracking Elvis jokes. You, you made fun of him, but you never listened to his music, so you didn't know what you are making fun of. It just seemed like a thing to do. That, I think that's a direct outgrowth of the fact that we just didn't experience music like that in my house. We just didn't. So. Yeah, and that's a shame, because Elvis really was I mean, deeply, deeply talented. Um, oh, I, God, I don't know. Awesome. I don't know that he wrote a lot of his own songs. So I'm actually yeah. not familiar. But, but man, that, that guy had a beautiful voice beautiful when you listen to even some of his latest live recordings you know during those vegas years and all that yeah like he looked a mess he still sounded fantastic though i mean he had a yeah. he had a set of pipes on him that just would were oh, so yeah. so 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 good listening to him sing and it was just a, in a lot of ways astonishing. you know elvis is a, a seminal figure because he popularized african-american music sure Oh, it, yeah. You know what I mean? And you know, appropriated slash popularized, obviously, like there's a discussion to be had about that. But like he opened the door for people to appreciate music that that they really hadn't. Because these were people coming out of, you know, going from uh, Glenn Miller and, and Tommy yeah. Dorsey and, and that kind of a world that, you know, the, the World yeah. War II. Yeah. And the Kingsmen and eventually. Yeah. Well, the Kingsmen eventually. But then, you know, like Chuck Berry, you know, like, but like yeah. like Elvis opened the door to like Southern music. 
this is soul music. Yeah, and that's not a small thing. So, like, I remember, like, my dad, okay, who, you know, he's no longer with us, but, I mean, honestly, my dad had no small number of viewpoints in his in his worldview that simply just were not they weren't cool then and they're not cool now right i'll just leave it at that but he couldn't fathom a world where rock and roll wasn't the sole invention of white artists right like like he to his dying day he was like he was like he was like no no bill haley on the comics rock around the clock that's the first rock and roll song they invented rock and roll i'm like is that Thor face? Is it though? Yeah, is it though? Sorry. Like, like, Sorry. like, Dad, are, Dad, are you on drugs? I mean, you ask me about that. Because <laughs> I, I we've got like, this new thing called Wikipedia. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's complete nonsense. You know? We're all gonna start clapping on, you know, two and four, and it's gonna be a thing. Just look out. <laughs> My dad had a deep reverence for Elvis. Like I remember, like we had a connection moment when Roy Orbison died. That was my dad's guy. He was like, you know, like I I had a reverence for him because I was exposed to him through like Van Halen covering his songs and stuff like that, and you know, and the uh, uh, traveling Wilburys, the traveling Wilburys, stuff like that. My dad, you know, said to me like, "Oh, I loved him," and I'm like, "I don't think you own a single record of his." And he was like, "Yeah, yeah," but Elvis was envious of his voice and i'm yeah, like right. oh okay you know i didn't know that elvis like you know and you know thought that roy orbison was the bee's knees but uh what, what i love about cool. roy orbison is he taught us that you don't have to look like a rock star to be a rock star yes. like like roy orbison <laughs> At least guy, extent, yeah right who's gonna sell you some you know auto parts from behind the counter uh <laughs> and yet the guy was just all talent or a yeah, patent scalp treatment <laughs> <laughs> so. But getting back to, to Prince for a second, though, though Chris, I mean, I, the thing about Prince that I remember, I was never a particularly huge fan of his music or, or of his of his sound, I should say, right? Just didn't really speak to me a whole heck of a lot. And, I, and by the time I was, like, was in college, he was doing songs like Get Off and Cream and like right. the, the, the videos are becoming these increasingly Baroque like Bacchanalias like on screen. I'm like, I, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm like, this isn't me. I'm out. Like, I can't <laughs> handle it, right? There's there's just too much, there's too much sexual energy coming off the television screen. <laughs> too much of your mother in you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're doing, exactly. Show everybody like, that he's got yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like, this is like melting the skin off my skull. I can't do it. So Prince died suddenly in 2016. 2016. But in 20, was in 2015, I think? He took over the world with that. Uh, that's on... where I'm going, Bill. Okay, I, I, then take it away because I, this is this is what kind of brought a lot of people like me back into the fold of realizing just what an incredible genius and virtuoso Prince really was. Yeah. So, it, in the weeks after his death, this video of him playing the guitar solo in an all-star version of the Beatles, "While My Guitar Gently Weeps." starts being shared around and and now there is a uh there's a director's cut and every every listener to this podcast should go and watch this if you haven't already because it's seriously one of the most amazing things you'll ever see so seconded it was it was the video we actually bill was not right before his death it was from 2004 2004 yeah wow okay i thought it was like i thought it was like a year before his death or something no it it just sort of when when he died it just bubbled up yeah Yeah, and 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 so it's actually from the 2004 rock and roll hall of fame induction ceremonies um yeah that year uh george harrison was inducted as george harrison as opposed to a member of the beatles uh, along with prince himself zz top bob seger jackson brown and traffic and uh the dells from the 50s this is just like, you know, at the, at the end of the ceremonies and everything, this is like their all-star jam concert. And, you know, we've got Jeff Beck playing 
guitar and doing half the lead tom petty playing guitar doing the other half of the lead vocal george harrison's son danny playing acoustic guitar steve winwood on, on keyboards on piano it, it was just this stacked lineup stacked lineup. row of talent <laughs> and 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 the story is actually fascinating because the the producer of the show had had said, "Hey Prince, we're gonna do while my guitar gently weeps, and we want you to do the solos." So like Prince, like who is you know notoriously solitary, and he sort of floats in and yeah. out of spaces. He like shows up to to a rehearsal, and uh, Jeff Beck's like lead guitarist guy, the guy that, that Jeff Beck plays with all the time, just sort of like jumps in and does the solos in the rehearsal. And and you know he's he's laying down a you know perfect version of Clapton's really original solo from the song. And by the way, that's not George Harrison on guitar in that song. It's Eric Clapton for the for the main solo. Mm-hmm. Uncredited and I didn't know it until quite recently. But okay. uh so this guy's just like doing his ch- his Clapton channeling and and Prince like he even jumps into the second solo Prince never gets to play he's like no let him do the first one I'll do the second one don't worry about it and and so he never rehearsed with the rest of the band he never knew what they were really going to do other than watching them play the song like the one, once or twice he saw you know halfway through the song during the actual show he he like sort of saunters out of the stage in this uh like long priest-length black pinstripe suit, a red fedora, and a, a red silk high-collared shirt. And he starts, he just lays into the second solo, and it is just stunning. It, it is one of the most stirring musical performances I've ever seen. He just, he, he sort of hits all those guitarist notes, you know, the, the guitar face, and 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 and, and the, <laughs> the the James Brown like collapsing back on yeah. into, the, into the crowd and being you know levered back up by his his dude out there, and he just absolutely destroys destroys the song. It it, it it it's the best version I've ever heard of it. it. It's the best version I can imagine of it. At the end of the at the end of the, the tune, he just tosses his guitar up over his head and it disappears, and nobody. Like, like this is one of the great, the great mysteries in the internet now. Nobody knows what happened to that guitar. Tom Petty's like, I don't know what happened to it. I, 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 I saw him throw it. I don't know where it went. Some say it's orbiting the Earth to this day. Right. <laughs> like, you, you just, if you haven't yeah. seen it, go yeah. watch it. And if you have, go watch it again because it yes. never, ever, ever gets old. Oh, yeah. uh, and that's why I was five minutes late to recording tonight because I was, I was, I just <laughs> no. wanted to pack it in right at the end. It's just so freaking good, and one of the things that I, I, I cannot miss every time I, I watch this, and I go back to every once in a while because it's just such a great solo, and like it's easy to not think of Prince as an absolutely murderous guitarist, right? Well, and he is one of the best that ever lived. Yeah, a multi-instrumentalist like, like people yeah. haven't seen in forever. I mean, he right. plays every instrument yeah. on his records. He's, 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 he's got the talent of 10 men. I mean, it was just astonishing Seriously. how much he could do. It was astonishing. But like, you see him just... Like he's going off, like Gandalf fighting the Balrog with his guitar, right? Just, just absolutely, just 
going crazy. And if you look at the faces of everybody else on stage, uh -huh. they're all realizing that like they're playing checkers and he's playing chess. Like all of a sudden they're like, we are, we are almost on the wrong stage all of a sudden. And Prince just like just sort of took it over. And there's like something kind of sly and subversive about how Prince knows he's basically hijacked the entire oh, thing. Oh yeah. And he's like, he's like, he I'll, he's like, I'll give it back when I'm good and damn ready to give it back. They, <laughs> I just, I just love that. Tom Petty's face is like, yeah, you know, they, they told me to just come in and, and, and do this song and then this guy came in and just shredded the hell out of it. It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, Tom it's hilarious. Petty's like, he's, he's he, he even talks about looking at Prince. He's like, holy crap, this is going great. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I'm just going to do good. I'm just going to keep doing chords for all night long. I don't care. <laughs> the look on Danny Harrison's face. He's, you know, he's, he's like strumming, you know, uh, acoustic yeah. guitar right behind Prince. He's just like, he's just got the most joyous look on his face. He's like, wow, he's yeah. wide eyed. And it's I can't okay. believe I'm getting yeah. to watch this. Much yeah, right. less play with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, such as Prince's career, that, that, there's that. But, you know, a couple years later, he did something else that was really pretty awesome. And it was like, it was very, very Prince. And that was his, um, his epic Super Bowl halftime show. Uh -huh. which was just an extraordinary it was, you know, it was everything you would, ex you, you would expect from from francis it began raining during the concert you know during and purple while, rain. while he's playing purple rain and it just opens up on him and he's looking like yeah like, he's looking like he cut a deal with the thunder yeah, God, I, this I planned like, this yeah like i planned <laughs> this and, and when you read about this history about that they knew there was a storm going on they're like oh man people might get electrocuted we can't have this Bring it. and prince is like don't change anything and he was like i'm here for this and he was so fearless and like like he starts playing he starts cutting in and just the sky opens up and it was like Man, the guy can control weather too. Like it's just, he. There's nothing he can't do. It was so it's such a cool scene to see. I will never forget that performance, as long as I live. And he was just. I mean, he was just, just on another plane. The, the guy was something of a god. Yeah. Let's not sleep on the fact that when we talk about Prince, we got to talk about like uh, Liberace to Bowie yeah. to Prince yeah. on like the normalization of androgyny and the normalization of gender fluidity. That came along mm. with Prince. Like, I have to agree. I, yeah. I can remember in the mid to late eighties as a kid that like we're like Prince, is he like a, a like a, a super sexy male guy or is he kind of like a you know gender fluid whatever? And like he was this seahorse kind of unicorn of a creature, right? I mean, I, like, I don't matter. know, but if he asked me back to his place, I'm going. Uh, yeah, you would be a fool not to. You would be a fool not to. Like you know what? I just have we, to. We knew, we knew that to begin with, but like, but like the way he dressed, like it was, it was almost homage to Liberace in a lot of ways. Like the the, the over the yeah. top kind of yeah, puffy shirts, sequined, frills, real, and frill yeah, collars, was, man. Honestly, <laughs> um, it was like it was like a whole you know yeah. you know watching Amadeus, it, you know Tom Hulse, yeah. if you could. It was also it was also folding in the new romantic movement in rock. I think yes. you know Duran Duran so. and whatnot. Yeah. So there were a lot yeah. of things that were brought out of the out of the shadows and into the mainstream through through Prince's uh, stardom. He, I mean, the, the kinds of songs he could write, you know, like just they they went from one end of the spectrum to the other. I mean, <laughs> a song like Kiss, yeah. And then a song like Purple Rain, you know, they, yeah, right. how different could they possibly be? Yeah. Or take me to when the doves cry. Like, I mean, like, that's just like the instrumentation of that is out of control. Like, sure. yeah, I don't love that song, but when it comes on, I can't stop listening to it. Even when I was a kid and you heard these songs coming out on the radio, or you watch it for the first time on, on MTV, <laughs> you could tell that like compared to other music coming out at the time, this was just like on another, it was on another level. Like it was just so much going on there. It was so much, there was like, there was like a density and a complexity 
that you weren't going to get listening to, you know, Nucleus, right? Like, you just weren't, weren't going <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, you know. The guy with pop-off songs, though. I mean, like, the rumor, you know, that he wrote uh, Manic Monday for the Bengals so he could bang Susanna Hoffs. I mean, like, just to even I have it. a rumor. I believe it, yeah. True or not. Completely true. In my head, Cameron, like that that's is, absolutely true. Yeah, I'm not going to let the truth in my head, Cameron, story it's there. all the Bengals. <laughs> my head again and it's all the bangles, again damn it. plausible i mean honestly his you know yeah his, his... oh yeah the apollonia six stuff i mean yeah yeah well i i i, I, I am afraid that maybe there was some casting casting couch stuff going on with uh with just, with prince yeah, i don't know but yeah, <laughs> the guy Why had a sexual the guy had a sexual gravity of a neutron star though i mean honestly, <laughs> no it's, doubt about it's, it it's inescapable <laughs> but, but i mean the, the, the other thing about him though is that Apart from his own, his own career, the, the music that he that he you know did himself, I mean he just he just produced. Yeah, we're talking about the Bangles, but like he produced so much music that made entire careers. Like he was a, just nothing a, compares to you, yeah. Right, like even if he had just been a producer, he would have been one of the great, great, great producers of all time, just because he produced he he helped put so much great music out there just under other artists. You Phil know? Spector with an axe. Pretty much, you know, just just astonishing. So he, I mean, yeah. So he was one of those guys, and and it's like he died, I guess, you know, just from a, from a pain medication overdose, and it was just one of those things where you know, life on the road just eventually wears you down. I guess he was about fifty or so when he died. The world needed another twenty or thirty years of Prince, and I I, I think we could probably attribute a good portion to how messed up the world is now by the fact that we don't have prints in the world <laughs> is it true or false there's Reach. like a there's like a vault isn't there a vault of print stuff that like isn't available yet my understanding is that he had so like he, he basically like his palace slash compound slash fortress of solitude slash nightclub for the whole city in the i guess the the minneapolis area yeah. uh, where we sort of like held court you know, he kind of owned this little corner of the world. My understanding is he did an enormous amount of re- he did an enormous amount of recording there, and that he just had a ton of stuff that like just was done, but not necessarily formally released. But I don't know how much of it is like shelf ready. Like it may just be. I. I, I yeah, I, I, I have no doubt there is a ton yeah. of material because yeah, that once guy. The lawyers are done. They're going to yeah. figure out a way to release a lot of that stuff. Look, it's, it's all I, all I know is. All I know is this, and no shade to Tupac Shakur, but there have been 435 albums of his put out after he died, okay? Surely we can get at least as many for Prince. That's all I'm gonna <laughs> that's all I'm gonna say. Okay. That's all I'm gonna say about that. All right, moving on. Joe, let's go over to you. Let's talk about some some artists that, you know, loom large on your radar, especially, you know, you know, once they passed and really kind of gave you gave you a moment of reflection. Yeah, I mean, if I were to talk about the the artists that I, I wish I had another 20 years of, I would actually, and this is gonna sound strange, I would go to John Belushi because um, you're talking about a guy that forget yeah. the comedy chops. This was a guy who was a musician along with Ackroyd. Their, their blues brothers were um, recording and touring and doing some stuff that was absolutely phenomenal. And I, I wish we had seen more of that, but, but that's yeah. neither here nor there. For me, when we talk about, about musicians that we lose, it's like any celebrities that we lose. It, it, it's reminders of our own sell by date, right? Like we're all mortal. Yeah. We're all going to shuffle off this coil at some point. And so when I was a kid, going back to the to mid to late eighties, um, there really were, you know, you had Madonna and Bruce Springsteen. You had Prince. You had Huey Lewis. Michael, what's that? <laughs> Huey Lewis. <laughs> yeah, Huey Lewis. Yeah. You had Billy Joel. You had Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston. Like, I mean, those were your like absolute tent poles of the, the pop rock world when, when I was a kid. And when we lost Whitney Houston and Michael Jackson, 
for all their flaws, for all the warts associated with those performers, these were absolute titans. And when they passed, it was a reminder that the world that we had inhabited as, as children had passed. You know, I still remember being 15 years old or close to 16 years old when Whitney Houston did the uh, national anthem at the Super Bowl, um, <clears throat> you know, in the in the throes of the first Gulf War. And like everybody's face melted. I mean, it was the opening of the Ark of the Covenant <laughs> when she did, the, when, when she it did was. that. And it, was. it is still probably the recording of the Star Spangled Banner. Like mm-hmm. if you were to pick yeah. The, yeah. the recording, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, what is it? That's the yeah. one. I would go for um, and when I was a kid, uh, when I was sixth, seventh, eighth grade, and you went to go to a, a, a junior high and later high school dance, if it was, a, you know, Whitney Houston songs were the ones where you wanted to find, you wanted to get off the wall and find a, a member of the opposite sex to, to, you know, shuffle back and forth with you. And you can't even talk about Michael Jackson. Like, I mean, this, you want to talk about epochal talents um, from the time he was five years old to the time he died. This guy was next level you know, an, an immortal among us. And yes, the, the, we can we can go down the rabbit hole of the things that tortured that guy and the things that pursued him, the, the demons that he had. And yeah. and there may have been some collateral damage associated with that. And that's not necessarily what we're here to talk about. But just, just from his... From an artistic perspective. From an artistic yeah. standpoint, you can't talk about 1975 to 1995 and talk about and not talk about Michael Jackson. There was a time in the 80s. I remember, I remember in 19, maybe 1994 having a debate with some friends, whether Michael Jackson or Michael Jordan was more well-known worldwide. And we came down to it that like, it's Michael Jackson hands down. Like, I mean, like, like there's, there's no two ways <laughs> yeah. around it. Yeah. And I remember being a kid, I remember being nine, 10 years old and Thriller was like, it was this comet that hit Oof. The, Oof. Uh, the landscape. Yeah. And, <laughs> and just, you know, from there, just like the, the songs to me, I mean, when I was a kid, you had Elvis, the Beatles, Michael Jackson. It was almost like like if you had to pick this like Rushmore of pop rock yeah. music, like that's kind of where it was. And Michael Jackson was the guy who just, he changed everything. He changed the game. There was a lot of, of uh, self-imposed damage, but man, just such such a, an impact that they made on the music that we listened to and still listen to now. My kids know who they are. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they were born long after they were gone. Houston, when she when she was at the height of her powers, her voice made the room seem bigger. Like she just like she just yeah. had such an enormous like magnitude to her voice. And you hear a lot of other talents, you know, singers, and they kind of do these big glory notes and runs and that sort of thing. Like a lot of it's kind of feels showy and all that. But there was like there's just this simple purity to to the power of her voice and how how precisely she nailed notes. And it was just this magnificent energy. And I remember first thing i ever saw of her and this was this is pre-auto tune is pre-auto exactly yeah exactly yeah no she was like yeah, oh, no there's they, nothing there's nothing she's studio a, about no, she's it. a total analog talent right she just had it the first time i ever saw anything from her or heard anything from her was when i saw the video for how will i know and you know she's you know just i was like who is this and she's all of a sudden it's like bam and she was like i mean again like like an asteroid amongst the dinosaurs like holy moses like she could <laughs> sang look at this i just it was astonishing how good she sounded and, and how how beautiful she was Gorgeous. she was oh, so, so pretty so beautiful oh there's, so, a, there's this so great story i apologize in advance when billy joel was uh at the height of his powers <laughs> yes and this is like 86 maybe and he's down in the caribbean in jamaica i think and he's and he's playing you know just and he's in a bar um, in Jamaica, and, he, and he's doing playing the piano, the piano. Man thing. 
yeah, he's doing his thing, doing what ugly guys do to get girls. And uh, these three models, models, singers, actresses come up. And it's Christy Brinkley. This is when he met Christy. And the other two girls who were not yet 18 that were with Christy were Elle McPherson, who was about to become the biggest supermodel in the world, and Whitney Houston. Yeah. And, and they like, they sang uh. at his piano and he ended up hooking up with Christy Brinkley, probably because she was the only one old enough. And apparently what he and Christy talked about all that night was like, can you believe the pipes on this girl? Whitney Houston? Yeah. Oh my God. She's going to be a huge star. Okay. I really want to, I really want to read the what if episode where Billy Joel bides his time and connects to Houston, <laughs> okay, and 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 prevents and and somehow prevents her from the extraordinarily painful and tragic descent that she had, you know, because she had she and, and had, Christy Brinkley hooks up with Bobby Brown, and it's a whole different thing. It's a whole different yeah. thing. Which they, they yeah, they take over the world. They start shooting down airplanes or something. They're just you know, like just pure evil comes out of all that, you know. But, but no, no, but but I mean. And, and Alexa you know, Joel can actually sing. We wouldn't yeah, have Town Easter Alexa, which would be another bonus. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but but Houston's voice was so astonishing. I mean, it was just sure. a, it was wow. pure, and it was just a joy to listen to. She was so. Well, there was there was know, a the, the oh. thing about Whitney Houston is there's a a Motown like Diana Ross caramel quality to it where it's just mm, it's yeah. it can't be matched, and well, we haven't seen it since. Yeah. Well, when Clive Davis started working with her like he really was looking for this like mega super breakout star and like had had a couple talents he'd worked with who were really fantastic and were legends in their own right but they weren't quite what he needed to be this like a star that consumes the whole planet kind of magnitude he was imagining and and, when, and Houston was was that Houston was like she can cross over many different ways her talent is just completely titanic she's just you know absolutely absolutely beautiful uh, but also beautiful at an age when video started really becoming a merry right, vector for your stardom. So, so, so we talked about Roy Orbison, right? Who is nobody's nobody's picture of of, of physical beauty. Um, Michael Kasich. Yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah, right. Billy and, Joel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's in point. Yeah. He's in point. But she was she was so gorgeous and had a voice that you know was just so astonishing. Well, she she know, was Bill, just like she was just a, a you know. When I was in high school, when I was in high school, the bodyguard came out and <laughs> I will always love you. The, the cover of Dolly Parton's I will always yeah. love you. Like she, that is, that's Omega level mutant. Like Jean Grey turns into the Phoenix level. Yes. Yeah, right. Really like it's, it's sound made blunt instrument. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and to, to appreciate that is you have to go back and listen to Dolly Parton's original, which is a fantastic song. Beautiful song. It's and beautiful Dolly song. Parton's a fantastic vocalist, and she nails that song and crushes it. Doesn't and matter. even by that standard, Houston is so, she totally takes it and it's like, this is my song now. And Dolly's like, I'm glad you have it because it's in better hands. Like, yeah. It's, it's, so it's, it's basically, it's basically I mean, like do Chris, that. Chris Claremont yeah. starts to write Dolly Parton and all of a sudden. Yeah, it's right? like, to, to take a song like that off Dolly Parton is no small thing. And she just took it effortlessly, you know? And and, and, and to this day, that whole boom. And that, like, right? Like, the, I can they still call see it, the video where it's yeah, like, it, you know, her tongue, yeah. you know, and like it's really yeah. It's like back. like the the they call it the boom eye moment, right? The boom eye moment is like it's like it's like, it's like Phil Collins drum riff from in the air tonight. Like it's one of these yeah. little moments <laughs> that like it's like it's just a, a, you know when they put the totality of human music onto a gold record and shoot it into space, they need to have this thing captured on it because it's as big a moment in the 20th century for music as anything else. When Whitney Houston 
hit her notes. That was proof of God. Yeah, like uh, there is there is music, and it's meant to make us feel things and 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 be fulfilled and be happy. And yeah. it's it is literally almost like holy, right? I mean, like it it is. It's hard not to feel that resonate inside you in a way that's you can't quite explain. Well, I'm not a religious person, but I will say that. Uh, Houston very much was and she that was very much in her roots and is in her music and informed her music and she um, very much drew upon that whole type of inspiration to power her performance power her art and here's um, an instrument yeah, 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 yeah. no question and, and she yeah. you know when she really <laughs> when she cut loose man she shook the firmament there is no doubt about it you know it's just amazing but before we move on though just, just just to double back make sure that Michael Jackson gets his due. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean they called him the king of pop for a reason, right? So we kind of got the king and queen as part, as part of the conversation. I'll just say that Jackson was so huge that you could like really know his work without being his fan because it was so environmentally yeah. saturated. It was so in everything. I never owned his album. I never disliked him, but I just never had his albums largely because the radio I listened he didn't to, have he, was, to. He, he, he didn't have to. You just, right. just wherever you went. His music videos were a sight to see. Like every time a new video of his dropped, I just was like, yeah. I just gotta watch it. Cause like, just like if, if you appreciated film, if you appreciated theater, you had to stop what you're doing and watch a Michael Jackson video. Even all the way up to black or white. Like even- Yeah, like, I, I yeah, mean like, like he, up he never did, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he never just banged out just kind of like a half ass video. They were always like so next level. The production values were so high and they're just so cool. You're just like, I don't know what he's going to do next. It was really neat to see his videos. And I, I love that about him. Oh, yeah, I really man. did. I, I would go to like, really, I didn't man. have MTV growing up. So I, cause we didn't get cable in our neighborhood until very, I was in college, I think before we got cable. Like I went to my cousin's house and it was when they were playing like the thriller video, like every 10 minutes or so. And you know, right. you know, yeah. catch it. And I was like, when's it coming on? When's it coming on? I got to see this. Just thing. wait a second. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I I'll tell you one of my favorite music videos of all time to this day still remains "Smooth Criminal." Right? That, oh yeah. And, and, the lean. And, and, yeah, the lean. The lean. The, the <laughs> lean was just like, what the hell? And this is like, this is for a guy who also who previously blew the world's doors off with the moonwalk, right? Even though he didn't invent it, he just sort of popularized it. But still, people were like, "What is that?" You he know, did and, it better and, than anybody. He else. did better than anyone. In <laughs> freaking penny loafers, like how? Wait, who? How? And like. I remember the first time he did it on, you know, on, on it, it was like like an award show. He did it, and the crowd was like completely. Yeah. You, could, you could hear heads exploding across the entire <laughs> the entire place. Like, like what the hell is that? You know, it was so great. He's was, not human. He's not when human. When you did the Super Bowl and like the like showing up at the four different and like the you know he, oh like, yeah no his, the fireworks. It's just he was huge. His stagecraft was like next level. I mean, his stagecraft was just simply second to none. It was it was just amazing. And and, and you know, it's, I got to say, if, like if I were to, you know, like if I were to have a time machine, I can go back and just sort of indulge strange little whimsies. I think certainly on the list somewhere would be go back and see a live Michael Jackson show, right? Just because it must have been. I just the the, the again, this the stagecraft on hand would have been just something something to see. Really would have been, but. He was an amazing, amazing talent. I, I got a recommendation. I got to tack on to, you know, Chris's uh, recommendation. Everybody go back and watch that guitar. While well, my guitar gently weeps video with Prince. Like if you happen to be able to get your hands on like a copy of like the deluxe mega edition of Thriller, where they have, you know, interviews with Quincy Jones and with everybody who was involved in making that record do go and listen to those tracks. It's actually yeah. like fascinating, you know, how they talk about 
putting together that record and like you get an idea of like you know a like how michael jackson's just immense talent was and like the things he could yeah. do with his brain to you know come up with tracks like the guy was just like a multi-track in his head which is fantastic yeah. but yeah. uh yeah uh you know he, he just you know, one of those he was a talents but like they talk about how that record was made and like what they needed to do to help you know get it to cross over and and uh, all this everything about that record and it was just it was so fantastic i it out man like my tape of that is totally destroyed you can't even yeah. listen to it you, you know what the most important thing they did tom to to make that crossover was to hire eddie van halen <laughs> we'll get there we'll get there we'll get, we'll get there, <laughs> we'll get there. So, so. i didn't say about michael jackson though one thing is that i mean his career was so huge but don't sleep on the jackson five there's some oh, actually, no. oh no there's this, i mean just crazy ridiculous good music going on there and i mean like the love you save is a song that lives in my head rent free all the time it's i mean i am constantly riffing that song in my head i freaking adore it it's so good uh it, yeah it just i want ABC. you back if that oh, like, you back if, if you like oh. put on i want you back right now and i don't start dancing in my chair like something i would be dancing <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. yeah. When when Baby Groot's doing that in Guardians of the Galaxy, that's because everybody in the world is doing, doing it when that. that song comes on. Like, you're simply just expressing a truism, which is that you hear that song, you're going to start moving. I don't care who you are or where you are, you're going to move, you know? But yeah, no, it's 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 pretty awesome stuff. So, all right. Moving on, I'm going to take the mic for a second here. I'm going to talk about Freddie Mercury, the flamboyant frontman of Queen. Queen is one of those bands that, um, I didn't really have their albums in large, again, kind of like, like Michael Jackson. When I was growing up, uh, you know, I listened to, you know, <laughs> the Lehigh Valley's classic rock station, Z95. Right? And so, like, they just had Queen on heavy rotation. Steve Miller all the time. It was, it was just like, just, <laughs> uh, just a lot of, not so much Steve Miller, but just like a lot of, like, Stones, Who, Doors, Floyd, you know. Zeppelin. Um, yeah, 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 Zeppelin, like, all that kind of stuff, right? But Queen was, like, very much part of it. They were constantly playing Queen. So I listened to it. I, so I knew Queen well. But, like, the first album of theirs that I bought was A Kind of Magic, mainly because I was a big fan <laughs> of the movie Highlander, and that was the unofficial soundtrack to Highlander, right? Freddie Mercury is one of these interesting performers because, you know, he was a guy very flamboyant, very open in the way he behaved on stage, you know, very openly signaling, like, I am either gay or bisexual. And we don't know because, I mean, he never actually said one way or the other. He was, this is who I am, but I'm also not going to talk about it because it's none of your damn business, and I'm just here to knock your face off because I'm, I'm a four-octave vocalist and i'm gonna sing like crazy right and people are like okay this is the deal right and but at a time when it wasn't okay to be out right like he was doing his thing at a time when it was really not cool to be out at all and by cool i mean like it wasn't safe he grew up on zanzibar where homosexuality was simply illegal right so i mean you know, you know so he That's was capital con- crime, <laughs> yeah i mean like seriously he understood like you know what his life was so anyway massive massive superstar in 1985, he performs this iconic performance at the Live Aid concert. Go in and Google it. The Live Aid performance. It's just it's it's one of the signal moments of pop culture of the 1980s. And when Queen gets up and performs, Freddie Mercury kind of steals the show in front of 72,000 people, Wembley Stadium. It's just an astonishing moments. Great. 1986, Queen releases a kind of magic. But then 1987, Mercury is diagnosed with AIDS. 
he and the band keep it very, very quiet. He was actually, in a weird way, as flamboyant as he was on stage, he was a very private guy in person. Even though Rock Hudson had been diagnosed and all that, you couldn't do it. Like it was just, it was just an indictable offense to be to be gay and to have AIDS, that sort of thing. And so he kept quiet about it. And I'll be honest, I think if I was in his position, I would have done the exact same thing. To be to be perfectly fair to to him, because there are people who've kind of criticized him for not being more open about it at the time. Like, dude, you go to 1987 and tell right. the world that you're gay and have AIDS and see how that goes, right? Yeah. So we we, we were we all remember. Uh... The Reagan administration's response to the yeah, AIDS crisis. right, right. I mean, like exactly. six, seven years later, Magic Johnson wouldn't even talk about. I mean, like it was, it was not something he did. Mercury's dealing with this ongoing health crisis. He continues to record and continues to not so much perform. I mean, uh, the tour they did for a kind of Magic was their last tour because once he is diagnosed with AIDS, he stops touring. But they record the album The Miracle in '88 and '89. And then they record their final album, which is Innuendo, which was released in 1991, but it was recorded through 1989, you know, from March 1989 to November 1990, they're recording it. And by that time, Freddie is in a really bad way. You know, his AIDS has really gotten bad. I remember seeing like an MTV thing, you know, Kurt Loder was like, you know, Freddie Mercury photographed outside of a clinic, you know, is, you know, fueling rumors. And, and Freddie just looked awful. I'm like, man, leave the guy alone. Even as a kid, I'm thinking like, leave the guy alone, you know, come on. Clearly, Innuendo was going to be his last album. He knew it. Like, he knew his time was, was, was short. He knew how to make use of the time he had left and have his art reflect. So unlike a lot of the other people we've talked about who died sort of unexpectedly or died suddenly in a way, and they really couldn't set, set up their own farewell, he, Mercury did. Mercury had, he kind of did everything he could to sort of set up a goodbye to his fans and a final artistic statement on his own terms to the extent that he could. The final track of Innuendo is a song called The Show Must Go On, right? And it's this song written by Brian May, his collaborator and, and the guitarist. But really it's about, you know, the notion of like this clown who is suffering under his makeup but still smiling anyway. And it was inspired by May watching Freddie coming into recording sessions and going out to go to age treatments and coming, and, and he was suffering so badly, but by all accounts, he wouldn't complain he wouldn't talk about it. He just, he really soldiered on and completely showed this, this, this immense amount of fortitude and, and struggling against this dire, dire ailment of his. The Show Must Go On is a song that, you know, he sings it and tears spring to my eyes every single time I listen to it. This, this song would just blast you to pieces for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that this is the song of a man who is, who is dying. There's an article in, in Rolling Stone where, May's talking about. He goes, "Yeah, we're recording this." And I'm like, "I've got these high falsettos. I'm asking a lot of of Mercury's famously ranged voice, but he's 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 really hurting, you know. So can he actually do all these things?" And he goes, "Fred, I'm not sure you can do it." And Freddie Mercury's like, he just he goes he goes, "I'll fucking nail it, darling." Throws some vodka back and boom, and just leans against the mixing board and just belts it out. According to some, there are a lot of accounts that you know he he did it one take. Right now, I don't know if he did it one take or not. It doesn't really kind of matter because when you listen to the song and you hear the power in his voice when he's singing, given where his body is, it's heroic. It's epic. It's titanic what he does in that song. It's freaking awesome. But not just the the vocal, the fact that he sang, the lyrics are just they just crush me. It's um you know, it, it it's well I'll just read some if you don't mind. It's it's whatever happens, I'll leave it all to chance. Another heartache, another failed romance. On and on. Does anybody know what we're living for? I guess I'm learning. I must be warmer now. I'll soon be turning round the corner now. Outside the dawn is breaking, but inside the dark, I'm aching to be free. The show must go on. The show must go on. 
Inside my heart is breaking, my makeup may be flaking, but my smile still stays on, right? And just, and, and like, and me reading it, I can't possibly do this 1% of the justice it deserves. Again, your homework, dear listeners, is go ahead and fire up. <laughs> the show must go on and just listen to it and you'll know what I'm talking about. And I think the last thing I'll say about this is that you go on YouTube, you see like reaction videos all the time. And it's really fun watching a lot of people. Somehow this song, oh, you know what it is? The 30th anniversary of Mercury's death happened back in November of 2021. So a lot of people were just sort of like aware of him again. And a lot of like Gen Zers were doing these reaction videos of them listening to the show must go on for the first time. Not really knowing Queen, not really knowing Freddie Mercury, not knowing the story behind it. And they're just like listening to this and you can watch them as their faces melt and they're just like crying like oh my god this song what is going on here and it's like that's that's pretty awesome to see the song have that power to a completely separate audience that far afterwards i think i think mercury himself would would be pretty stoked about it so with that with that i'll turn it over to you guys for for i I love that the kiddies are doing that now because like you start to get exposed to people you know hearing things for the first time that blew you away the first time that you heard them and you get to see the reaction to that and and remember your own sort of like first time hearing those songs yeah. and it's just so fantastic i love it i love it <laughs> it's it's so the, so good i i'll say that the the two things about Freddie and uh and queen for me one is uh, when i was in high school late 80s early 90s playing football like uh uh, we will rock you and we are the champions. Oh my God. Endlessly, endlessly, yeah. endlessly all the time. Until, but, until seven nations army came out, that was probably the top sports anthem on the planet. <laughs> it's all I knew in the yeah. late eighties and early nineties. But then, um, I also remember, I remember going to the, the movies in 91 with a buddy of mine. I was, uh, I think a junior in high school and we're watching Wayne's world. Yes. And <laughs> when they do the Bohemian Rhapsody, in Wayne's world, like you wouldn't think that that this was an intersection in pop culture that that mattered, and yet, and yet, in the oh, pre-internet crap. age, when when Mike Myers and Dana Carvey and the guys in the car do Bohemian Rhapsody, it it took that song, which was already like okay, kind of popular, and like launched it into the stratosphere. Yeah, yeah. Well, 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 maybe number that, one hit again. Yeah, it was maybe, and it was in the spring, so it was less than six months after he had passed. And it was also right around when the Freddie Mercury concert for AIDS awareness went down. That was that was on Easter Monday. It was it was, it was like April '92, right? Again, they sold that Wembley Stadium in three hours. Okay, but I'll tell you, without Bill, even without even having a card to find, other than Queen will be there and some other people. It turns out every major person in rock showed up. It was like Live Aid, but but yeah. But Bill, I'll tell you, I was a junior in high school and I didn't know a lot of that context at the time. I just yep. was at a movie because it was funny. And it was, you know, like <laughs> an SNL movie and all this stuff. Yeah. But yeah. like that Bohemian Rhapsody, I, I, that very much propelled us backward to understand who Queen were in the previous 15 years of their yeah. discography. And that's, that's, yeah. legit. that's awesome. That's, I that, like that, when that, it makes you go back like that. That is so yeah, terrific. Right? Yeah. You know, one of the cool things about that is uh, that was an expensive song to get the rights for. I don't doubt it. And, and yeah. um, the producers were like, can't we do like do some Judas Priest or Iron Maiden or something? <laughs> and, and Mike Myers is like, no, I quit if you don't do this. And really, and that wasn't going to happen because he was the yeah. sled dog. Yeah. 
yeah. Well, I, I mean, I mean, it's it, it's a great movie moment. I mean, I, I think they, I mean, I think they do the entire song, don't they? Like, like I don't think they it's do a lot of it. Version. They I do a lot it, of it. It's I think not it's all pretty, the most. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty close to it. I remember just like just to this day, it. every time I hear that song in the car, I, I you know, yeah, but 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 honestly, I I did that before that movie came out. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Back when Trisha had all the hair. Yeah, yeah I understand. You know, <laughs> there were people who lived through it, and then you know there were the homophobic guys that I went to high school with, who like were fans of Queen all along, not realizing that Freddie Mercury was gay. And then <laughs> right. when that movie hit, and like all the stuff with the AIDS, you know, before uh, yeah, that like just melted their brains. Like they didn't know what to do. And oh my god. Andrew Johnson was about to do the same thing to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm sure Mercury would have been slapping his knee over that too. Like, oh, darlings, you just don't know. Like, where have you been this entire time? Have you ever seen any footage of me whatsoever? I didn't make it hard. (laughs) You know, it's so good. It's not one of their their hugest hugest songs, but can anybody find me somebody somebody to love? Uh, it's the, the, a huge the song. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, it's, 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 I mean, it, it is. Well, it's a big song, but it's not We Will Rock You. It's not Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. You know, it, it's not even, I would say. I love that it's all done in round. Another yeah. one bites the dust. It's all in canon. <laughs> I mean, holy smokes. That, uh, his vocals in yeah. that song are. Uh, Freddie Mercury is the male. Whitney Houston? Whitney Houston. Yeah. I, yeah. Kind of. I mean, the, the, the dude. Had he, he had an unbelievably he, pure and powerful voice that was and just could, irrepressible. And he, could, and he could sing effortlessly in four octaves. Yeah. He was a four octave singer, right? I, I'm under two, what? I think. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. I've got half a one. I'm lucky to hit uh, one. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I don't want to get too deep in it, but I mean, he's one of those, this one of those bands that I think people have always kind of sort of undercut it a little bit because, you know, it's just, they're over the top, they're in your face, they're kind theatrical. of super glam and mm-hmm. they're theatrical. Some, that just rubs certain people the wrong way. And so they, they, they kind of, kind of undercut it. But, you know, it's one of those like, you know, when you look at the critical response to Queen and the popular response to Queen, the two are rather different. And the popular response is freaking enormous. You know, it's really quite quite huge. The show must go on. And by the way, when you if you go and search it out, I encourage you to find the music video of it on YouTube because that is poignant as hell. The last music video he did was for another song on Innuendo called The Days of Our Lives, which is really sad. I mean, I, I mean, it's a beautiful song. And just the lyrics, again, are just like somebody looking back. And it's the last... The last time they ever actually filmed Mercury, he's very gaunt. He's standing still. He's conserving his, ener- his energy. And like the motion you've seen in that video, that's all he has to offer, right? So like the, that's the last video he shot. Even though they released, the show must go on after it. The video to that, they knew he was not much longer for the world. And so it's basically just like a re- the whole video is like a retrospective of, of Freddie Mercury. It's like a best of of all the other videos they've ever done with him. It's very touching. So when you watch it, it kind of it makes a, a a song that gets you right in the heart. It you know you know it, it pushes it even a little further. <laughs> you know because it, it really it really gets you. It's quite good. But you know when I think about this song, I also think about one of the songs from. Um, from a kind of magic, which is called "Who Wants to Live Forever," and it's not—it's not one of Queen's iconic songs necessarily. It is to me, though. It's his love song for an immortal, who, you know, who falls in love with somebody who's not going to age with them. There is no time for us. There's no place for us. What is this thing that builds our dreams yet slips away from us? There's no chance for us. It's all decided for us. This world has only one sweet moment set aside for us. Who wants to live forever? Who dares to love forever? When love must die. Oh, 
Freddie, man. <laughs> Rock and peace, man. Love you. Oh, man. All right. So with that, Tom, we're going to hand it over to you because this whole episode, actually, the genesis of this came from a moment that you shared with everybody in your circle not long ago when somebody, an artist you really loved and who meant a lot to you passed on and your reaction was so earnest and so so forthright i was like you know i was i was very moved by it but also i'm like you know this is this you're tapping into something that's kind of elemental like everybody everybody shares to some degree the kind of energy that you had for this particular person perhaps not as as deeply as you did but i've been really eager to kind of talk with you about this because i really haven't talked to you about it since this happened and i'd love to kind of get your thoughts on this so talk to us about the artists you have in mind who meant something to you who passed on the thing you took from it once and, and how that passage kind of helped kind of recontextualize your love for this artist. Oh, yeah. Go. Well, you know, 2020 was a pretty garbage year, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty much the worst. Yes. It was like super garbage for me because my musical idol died. You know, it was, um, uh, you know, most, most people who grew up with me are just, you know, sick of hearing me talk about Eddie Van Halen because he, you know, he's just been my guy all along. And, you know, 2020, he, he, he passed away. It was like a few days, even before I could acknowledge it. Like, I think I acknowledged it on Facebook and that was about all I could do. I mean, my mom called. <laughs> she knew huh? that, like, it, uh, you know, it mattered. You were on PlayStation for like two days. I was like, uh, I need to check nah, up on Tom just, here. I, that knocked me out. Cause it was like the cherry on top of a, you know, really, Bleep it out. It was a shit Sunday, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, every everybody who knows me well, like knows, you know, my my love for Van Halen goes back to, like, uh, you know, my earliest days. They were the first like real artists that you know I can remember latching onto, and I you know I talked about it in the Desert Island albums thing that you know that was one of the yeah. first records I got was you know my uncle got me this tape that had. Van Halen's fair warning on one side and women and children first on the other. And that was like one of the first things that I got to listen to that was my own that just, you know, blew my mind. I mean, it, it, that, that those records were just boom, you know, like I became a Van Halen fan, but then realized like along the way I had had exposure to a lot of their back catalog and just, you know, I hadn't even realized it. Like my dad, um, you know, had coached a, uh, a state championship high school baseball team in like 1982 and the signature of that team, the, the Comstowag Warriors. Okay. Back in 82, anytime they beat a team, they would play happy trails, which was the last song on diver down <laughs> for the other team. You know, it's kind of like, you know, the weird flex, but you know, I got the yeah. job done. <laughs> um, so, you know, and then we'd listen on the, in the bus on the way back, we'd all listen to the rest of the album. So like, I've been listening yeah. to this stuff all along and it had been melting my face all along. That's how I became a fan. What it comes down to is, you know, my connection to it and what makes me always want to talk about Van Halen all the time is my connection to it as a musician. Eddie Van Halen was a guy who was, you know, an amazing musician, but also, you know, a very passable engineer. And he sort of worked to put this culture of experimentation into a lot of his music, which was a thing that just really stuck with me. And I think, you know, turned me into, into a much more interesting musician. So like, you know, I had been taking piano lessons from like the neighborhood teacher early on in life. 
And, you know, by the time I got to middle school, I graduated to a new teacher, this, this woman, Pamela Ross, who lived in the next town over. And she's an amazingly creative woman. You know, had her own off-Broadway show and stuff like that, where she was, you know, playing solo to, to crowds, uh, wow. you know, classical music and stuff like that. But her philosophy was like, if you're not going to enjoy piano lessons unless you enjoy what you're playing. So I graduated from like one teacher, you know, who was the regimented, go through the books, learn all the scales, you know, to Pamela Ross, who was like, play what you want and enjoy it. So I started picking up like a lot of, you know, Van Halen books at the, you know, the uh, music store, (laughs) bringing them in. And, you know, she seemed to be as interested in it as I was because the music was interesting to her, you know, even transcribed for, for piano. But like, you know, I learned the whole like 1984 album in seventh grade when that came out, I bought the book and, you know, we, we went through the whole book. I learned all the songs. That's so great. And, Go uh, ahead and jump. Oh, yeah. Like, well, you know, that was one I sounded out by yeah. ear even before I got the book. But like, you know, that was like the first time I think that I like, you know, I had an experience that like brought me into like hang with the cool kids because we had this great like music lab at school where like kids could just come in in middle school and just, you know, jam around. They had a bunch of they had a drum kit set up. They had guitars they had synthesizers in there that you could play with and uh you know i just remember walking in there one day and this kid mike barry was playing drums he wasn't very good at it but he was trying to get good at it and you know i just joined in with him and we you know just a couple of van halen keyboard tunes we played jump we played i'll wait and the next thing i knew there's a crowd around us you know just me and this guy jamming out and it, like that was the first time like I'm like, oh, this is what being a cool kid feels like. Okay. <laughs> yes. And so yeah, like the piano continued when I was like 15, like Eddie Van Halen just really inspired me to go out. And like, even though my parents really didn't want me to because they didn't want to distract from the piano. I went out and bought a guitar uh, with you know money I, I made uh, cutting lawns and stuff. You know, I bought this candy apple red Kramer guitar, which was the the brand that Eddie Van Halen was endorsing at that point in time. And it was a piece of garbage. But (laughs) what I inherited from the experience was like, you know, Eddie was always talking in music magazines about experimentation. He did like these weird things like dip his guitar pickups in hot wax so they wouldn't feed back he would boil guitar strings and like there were all these like little weird things that he did that like other guitarists would sort of copy and and swear you know swear by so he had this like real thing that he brought to the guitar world which was hot rotting your guitar and like working on it like you know people like the beach boys worked on their you know their hot rod you know that kind of thing And that just took over all of the guitar world, you know, which had been playing Les Pauls and, and, you know, Fender Strats and all these, you know, standard sort of electric guitars. Now people would just go and buy like parts and start putting them together and and Mm. trying to make new things out of guitars. And I I tuned into that in like a big way. And my my room, like when I was in seventh and eighth grade, started to look like this thing, you know, there are Van Halen posters on the wall, of course, but there were like wires running everywhere from like a synthesizer I bought, you know, into my stereo wires running, you know, Bill, you probably know this from like Connor's room, you know, like things start, you know, you start playing around 
absolutely messy very very quickly. absolutely yes um, yeah, it's a fire hazard <laughs> it totally is yeah but it's a beautiful but, fire hazard though <laughs> it is it's fantastic you know, yeah. list from the epa to shut you down <laughs> yes it's true this man yeah. has no dick that's what so, i heard yeah so it, so there was a lot of that experimentation yeah. going on and like yeah. you know eddie was talking to guitar magazines about you know playing with the voltage on his amplifiers and almost like electrocuting yeah. himself stuff like that you know but um so tom again when he died it was like he had been fighting throat cancer for a long period of time is my understanding mm -hmm. and so like his health issues were kind of well known there's kind of these stories like oh his his health has taken a dip that sort of thing and people were kind of like you know watching like, how's he doing so it's kind of not it wasn't altogether surprising when he died but it was still was like you know a gut punch to a lot of people can you talk about like the moment you found out he was gone like what did that what did that what did that feel like to you like like i because as somebody who yeah. had that you weren't just a fan of the music like you had undertaken a musical journey that was kind of a little unusual, but directly inspired by the kind of journey he was taking. So it's kind of a parallel there. So I'd love to get some thoughts on like what went through your head and went, went through your heart when when you realized you you had been given your goodbye with this guy who meant so much to you. Yeah, I, when the, it, it was like a period where it was a difficult thing for a lot of the fans because you know there was always this drama going on about like are they going to go on tour are they, which lead singers are they going to bring out you know that kind of a thing yeah um and you know the rumors of the poor health and everything but like we had sort of gotten through that before like the tongue cancer was supposedly all cured and he had these cuckoo things that he was talking about, you know, about different things. Like he flew out of the country and did like a medical tourism thing in Germany with some cuckoo doctor to try and clear it up. And that, that supposedly was all done with. And uh, while we knew he was in poor health, it was still a surprise. Like I found out by reading a tweet from his son, which is pretty much how everybody else found out. Uh, his son Wolf, you know, he's got a he's got a record out of his own. He's you know he's Wolf his own God. musical genius. But uh, you know, he said, I, "Like I can't believe I'm typing this." But you know, my my dad has passed on. Like I I, I I was boom. It just it hit like a ton of bricks because not only you know do you lose somebody who all along has been an inspiration from a standpoint of somebody who loves to listen to music and then from the standpoint of somebody who loves to make music and then it hits you that you're never going to get to hear him play live again which was so much of yeah. my high school and and beyond experience just going to shows I mean, I have countless photographs of like me and my friends, like before we could drive, like piling into a white limo, everybody in acid wash denim from head to toe going to a Van Halen ah, show. Ah. You know, that was that was the kind of thing that we we did like all the time. And like just when when the when it hit me that he died, I was like, like, we're never gonna get to go back. And like every time we the, he every time they toured and came through town, we went sometimes to multiple shows uh you know with my friends uh who I, I went with back in the day and it was just like we're never gonna have that experience live again was just like a gut punch totally yeah 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 um let me ask it, you this question if i if, if i may and you, you touched on this briefly as big of an eddie fan as you were what's your take on van hagar <laughs> I, you know, my, my thing with the, I, I enjoyed the Van Hagar years I did. And, but like my take on it is 
you have to look at it in a certain way in that it, it became a different band when Sammy Hagar moved in. And I love all the music from that era. Like I adore the 5150 album. I think like right now is my favorite Van Halen song. Uh, like and it was great. Like they started writing more to yeah, be able awesome. to accommodate Sammy's range, you know, the ability right. to have like another electric guitar on stage. Yeah his you know penchant for singing stuff that was more melodic in nature so they became became more of like a melodic rock band than they had yeah. been with you know the, yeah. the party band they had been so it's, it's two different bands <laughs> you know the, the thing about van halen that i really took away from and this is something that i try to get my head around honestly tom it didn't really crystallize until we did for the show the saturday night live episode we were talking about snl and you talked about eddie van halen's impromptu appearance on that like he wasn't you know he, was, he just showed up and just starts rocking out with the band right homework for the episode go back and google that google eddie van halen saturday night live and watch him playing with the band there and there is a glee to that guy as he's playing he is just he just enjoys doing what he's doing like there's real love in in, in his yeah. craft and, and, and i think you would see that with everybody we, we've talked about tonight but i mean it was really, he had this childish kind of smile on his face. And I don't mean that in a negative way. He was just like, there's a pure just love of just doing what he was doing. And I think that really kind of helped to fuel his music quite a lot. And I think when I look back at Van Halen, especially back in the earlier days, it was one of those bands where even if you didn't like it, you, at least in my world, it was uncool to talk ill of it because you saw it, Van Halen fans were like, they were just having so much damn fun you dare not scrape your boot heels across it. Like, you know what? Like, don't get in their way. They're just having the best time of anybody on the bus. Like, they are rocking out so hard. <laughs> like, you wish you rocked out to your... It, yeah. yeah, let them have it. You wish you rocked out as hard to your favorite music as the Van Halen fans are rocking out to theirs, you know? And, like, that was a really cool thing to see. Like, I really... I respected Van Halen fans because they had such a deep... Like, the, the lightning from that music struck so pure right into them. And I just... I thought that was such a cool thing. And... And you really saw that with Eddie, the way he played, I think. Uh, it is true. You know, if you can track down any kind of concert videos, like he's always just got this like the 18 year old smile on his face, yeah. you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Bill, that, that's a, that's such a great observation because I, I personally, I was never really a big Van Halen fan. I mean, 1984 was a huge album. And of course I listened to it on the radio, like everybody else. I, I was just never a huge fan. And I always had the impression early on that Eddie Van Halen had to be kind of a meathead because of, because of that look, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. He just, looked, he really kind of looked like a doofus. He kind of looked but, dopey, but no, <laughs> but no, the dude was having fun and, yeah. and, and yeah, he's freaking talented. Yeah. <laughs> talented and no slouch of an engineer. I mean, like what Tom was talking about, the stuff he, the technical innovations he did, like just the weird stuff he invented, to advance the physical art of make of electric guitar music just the he advanced the instrument itself just with his weird mad scientist tinkering and not a lot of artists can can mm -hmm. say that they did a lot to actually advance the instruments on which they played <laughs> but but eddie did not that many you know maybe but... less paul but uh... <laughs> <laughs> so now what about les paul i understand that you've got you've got a connection to les paul too though right tom yeah i mean that that was one you know like i i just there was an irony to it because les paul like had a regular gig at the iridium in new york city like pretty much up until the day he died i mean and he was in his 90s when he died there were friends of mine who 
you know, we would talk guitars and we would talk music and stuff like that. And, you know, I would tell them like, Hey, you know, like Les Paul is still up, you know, the club's on 51st, like, let's go. (laughs) And, you know, I I got a a couple of chances to go in there, you know, see, see him play his gig and stuff like that. But uh, there, there was a group of us that will remain nameless, but um, because of the subject matter, but we (laughs) said, all right, we're going to go get Les Paul tickets. And, uh, you know, we went up to the club and they actually, for the first show, they couldn't accommodate our number because we I think we had like eight people or something with us uh, and they couldn't get us all in like one area so we're like all right we'll come back for the later show here's a guy in his 90s he's playing how many shows like in a night at this yeah (laughs) So, so we'll come back for the later show we got completely sidetracked and i saw it coming a mile away like these guys were like oh what are we gonna do for a couple of hours until the next show oh there happen to be a bunch of strip clubs right around the corner i'm like oh, oh damn it Lord. this is where it goes off the rails <laughs> we never made it to the show and all the people who were there aside from me because i had seen him les paul died and they were like oh my god no no we didn't get to see him no <laughs> like you went to the strip club jerk wad because <laughs> <laughs> you're a bunch of idiots and i'm not <laughs> oh but les paul was fantastic yeah. man like go back like here's some more homework for you like go back and listen to the stuff he recorded with his wife mary ford and and just listen like this is stuff from like the 40s and everything where you're, you yeah. you just you can't believe what you're hearing because it's so much like guitar innovation, but during that time period, and and it, it's yeah. it's kind of like hearing the future in the past. <laughs> it's fantastic. I love listening to Les Paul. <laughs> Go I listen to like a time. recording of like How High the Moon or something like. That. It's so fantastic. <laughs> I, I will say that, and this is uh, the topic has gone too soon, and this probably doesn't apply given the age of the the character, but. I can remember being in college and going up to Bowdoin to see a buddy of mine and we got BB King tickets. You know, this is 1994 maybe. And BB King kind of shuffles out on stage and you're like, look at this old fatso. What's he going to do? And he starts slow, starts slow. And then he just starts to wail. Like he just starts to, to play and, and, and it rocks out for two hours. Yeah. And after the concert is over, um, a buddy of mine and I were wandering around campus and we saw the tour bus and we just kind of wandered over there and there he is on the tour bus. And they're like, come on in, hang out. And he let us hold Lucille. <laughs> what? Yeah. You guys like, hold well, Lucille. I'm going to kill you I, for I, holding I, the story out. And, Dude, bearing the lead. What the hell, Joe? I go, I go to like, <laughs> so he lets us hold Lucille and I go to kiss Lucille and BB says, nah, dude, no, like that, that's, that's enough. Like nobody, kiss, nobody kisses Lucille. Dude. And don't, uh, don't make it weird, Joe. Right. Like, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah, like, yeah, no, no, no. But uh, I, to the point, like when people can play and this goes to what you were talking about, Tom, when, when people have that capacity to just just melt and just use that guitar as a vector to destroy your brain, that doesn't go away, whether they're 35 or 75 years old. It really doesn't. I remember sitting in that that theater up in Maine and watching BB King just do his thing and being in absolute awe. And he was probably 75, 80 years old at the time. Yeah, it, it's it's unbelievable. A lot of David these guys Gilmore just still don't shreds. Slow down. They get better. You know, it's it's crazy, but uh, yeah. they just they keep playing and they just they get better with age. <laughs> oh man! Well, look before we wrap up, a final thought. There's this thing called the Twenty Seven Club. 
which has its, as its members musicians who all died at the age of 27. It includes, uh, you know, the Rolling Stones founding member Brian Jones, but also Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Otis Redding, Jim Morrison, Robert Johnson, Kurt Cobain, and Amy Winehouse, among others. And it's the kind of thing that makes people think that there's some sort of curse at work. But really, it's just a mix of trauma, tragedy, and timing. In 2016, Greg Hall, an assistant clinical professor at Case Western Reserve University, published an article in which he analyzed the 252 artists who had made Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Artists list over the years. And what he found was alarming. At that time, the average global life expectancy was almost 72 years. But the average life expectancy of people on Hall's list was only 49, which is equal to that of the African nation of Chad, which had the world's lowest life expectancy of, of, of any nation. Now, the reasons for such a short lifespan among famous musicians are you know, kind of the usual suspects, right? Drugs, drinking, smoking, uh, risky behavior, the occasional homicide, vehicular crashes. The truth is, a lot of our best musicians become great artists because they're self-medicating tremendous personal pain, right? And that kind of thing tends to shorten one's longevity. And while that doesn't explain Keith Richards, it does point to something <laughs> that perhaps deserves more attention than the 27 Club. When we lost Tom Petty in 2018, it was from a painkiller overdose that sprung from a cracked hip he sustained during rehearsal. He didn't want to stop the tour for surgery, which he should have done, and instead try to power through. The care he got probably helped speed him to his grave, and sadly, this happens more often than we might think. A lot of musicians, they get VIP treatment from their doctors who are either so starstruck by their patients or just don't feel like they have agency to act fully as doctors that they don't actually deliver the best care to their patient. Uh, and that may have contributed to Prince's death in 2016 as well, who, like Petty, was medicating for injuries he sustained while performing on stage, but didn't necessarily have other major underlying conditions. You know, the road will kill you, as the old performing adage goes. And that is certainly true of our increasingly aged superstars who are quitting or scaling back performances for health reasons. Seriously, in the last year or so, Ozzy Osbourne, Madonna, Elton John, and even Metallica have all had to bag performances because their bodies just can't take it anymore. It's a phenomenon that's just, that really should surprise no one. And you know, today, anybody who listened to or watched on MTV in the 80s or 90s is well past the age where they would qualify for full Social Security. Right? I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Bob Dylan is almost 80. Bruce Springsteen, Stevie Nicks, Sting, Debbie Harry, and Billy Joel are all in their 70s. Even Henry Rollins is just north of 60. Right. So knock on wood, but over the next 10 years or so, we will probably say goodbye to a lot more of our favorite artists than we would like. And that's going to be especially tough for fans whose heroes are still touring and producing new material when that final curtain comes down. Now, some of those heroes may follow David Bowie and use their mortality to fuel one last epic artistic statement. Homework assignment, go Google Black Star, listen to it. It's fantastic. Others will just simply rock on till dawn and wake up somewhere with a set of wings. But all of them will leave us wanting more, and that's probably how they'd want it. And you know, that's probably how it should be. This has been Moments of Truth. On behalf of myself, Tom, Chris, and Joe, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. 
and for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com. You know, you can't really dust for vomit. (laughs) 